Case number 2021022828. Investigators Adam, Evan, and Michael. Subject matter Storytelling and World Building. Welcome to Case Study. I'm Adam. I'm Evan. I'm Michael. Michael, I understand you would like to talk to us about storytelling today. Yeah. So as you two know, I went to uh, UC Davis and uh, my major was English in analytical fiction, analytical literature and creative fiction as well. So from that kind of um, more technical aspect of writing, I think it would be pretty interesting for me to just talk to you two and see how you feel about um storytelling and world building from a more technical standpoint than perhaps what is maybe talked about from day to day. But I'm also, so I think, really interested in how you two kind of see yourselves fitting into what I have been technically taught and see what it lines up with what you are already doing naturally or just what you think about it in general. So I think to start off, the first thing I assume uh, are the basics of storytelling. So to my understanding, The basics of storytelling have five essential components, also referred to as the five-act formula, which we all took sophomore year in high school from our teacher, Mr. Curry. Um, The five-act formula was exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, denouement, or literally the action of untying something from from French. What do you all remember from the basics of the five-act formula? Oh boy. Well, it's been a long time. I remember that Shakespeare used it. I remember we were writing papers about and analyzing it. And I think, I don't know that I really take too much notice in when I'm like consuming literature and stories and, and you know, film and TV, if it's there. But I think I can definitely tell when it's missing. Like I need, I was watching the umbrella academy and i felt like i was missing things and thinking about it now i think it's because it wasn't following some of the more standard literature formulas and i was like i don't really understand why i care i don't know where this is going i don't know where it's coming from i don't know what the point is and i think that kind of cemented into me what that is i think with media and stories nowadays Maybe it's something that, you know, that I noticed, but obviously we've learned these, you know, five basics from high school. But I find that a lot of media, at least traditionally, seems to slot into these things pretty naturally. And maybe it's the writers actually following, you know, these specific, I guess, beats that they're trying to hit. But I think if done well, it'll be practically invisible to you. It's only when you sit down and analyze and pick apart these stories that you go, oh, okay, this is the exposition, this is the rising action, here's the climax. And I think in different mediums that can mean different things, like say in a TV show, all of that could happen over the course of one episode versus five episodes, you know. And with this type of media, like TV shows or like video games, you can kind of play with that a little bit. Yeah, and let me clarify, I haven't had to take a writing or English class in like four or five years, and I really haven't written anything, and I 
don't really have a ton of time to read literature anymore. So I feel like I'm a little rusty on recognizing some of the classic literature needs and, you know, formulas that we were taught in high school and, you know, early, you know, maybe freshman English classes in college. So, but where I do have experience is I am, I do dungeon master for Dungeons and Dragons. I run, you know, tabletop RPGs and it's a cooperative storytelling type game, but you have to follow certain things because it's how you get players to interact with the story that's being told. And so following certain formulas like having exposition and doing an introduction and having the party introduce themselves and then having climaxes, falling actions, resolutions, like those things are all really important to a story. And it's just my experience with these formulas is slightly different. Not slightly, it's very different because you have to structure things very differently in in D&D and in tabletop RPGs versus writing a story. And speaking of writing stories, sometime last year I decided on a whim, hey, why don't I try writing a story? And like you said, Evan, I also haven't taken a writing class in several years. And I found myself making these plot beats and outlining them. And now that I'm thinking about it, it actually follows these five basics naturally, which is, I think, really interesting. And maybe it's something subconscious that we absorbed from high school. You know, it was, we learned about this then, our young, impressionable minds. But, you know, it was, I would, you know, I just went into it kind of blind, just trying certain things. And I was like, oh, by the time I finished my outline, I looked at it and went, oh, this is, It's got a start and an end, and it's got all these parts in it. Okay, with that being said, I would like to propose a challenge to the both of you to please break down Finding Nemo down to the five-act formula just to, you know, get a basis of what it is. Keep in mind, though, one of the things that I think is really forgiving about the five-act formula, though, is while each of them have a set order that they follow... Um, or else it doesn't really make sense in terms of plot. There is no specific or defined amount of time or page space that or time that something must occupy. You can have a really short exposition and a really long rising action. You can have a really long exposition and a really short rising action. So I think with that in mind, why don't you give it a whirl? Oh, do we want to do this kind of cooperatively? A little back and forth? Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So let's see. It, Finding Nemo... We have kind of the, the flashback at the beginning, right? Where it's Marlon and his wife. Do we ever learn it? Anyways, yeah. But we have, we have Marlon and his wife and the Barracuda. And then we have cut to present, basically, and Nemo and school. And I would say that whole, like, up to Nemo, up to Nemo going out to the boat. I think Nemo going out to the boat is the start of the rising action. Everything before that is exposition and introduction. I would agree. Yeah, that that seems about right. It's a very smooth transition, I would say. I think there's also two lenses to look at Finding Nemo through. There's the lens of Nemo, and then there's the lens of Marlin. Because Marlin's exposition, I think, lasts... I don't think his rising action starts until Nemo gets taken. But Nemo starts when he swims out to the boat. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, so then rising action... Oh gosh, so now the question becomes, where do we think it climaxes? That's a really good question. Yeah. And I think what you said was really interesting was Nemo and Marlin have two different climaxes in a sense, right? I think Nemo's climax would be 
maybe like in the dentist's office. I think Nemo's climax is when he he swims over the um the the volcano in the tank. Yeah, he like convinces uh god what's the the fish's name don't remember Nemo well enough um but he convinces him to let him do it he 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 gains the courage he goes through he fixes it he he does it and he what like launches out of the volcano or something to save Gil is that what he does um he swims into the filter and jams it with a rock yeah doesn't he do that a second time though he does it twice he fails the first time he does Oh, because the first time failed. The first time failed, and then he does it the second time, and the second time. Yeah, I think that's his climax, because he failed, and then he succeeded. And then, because really, after that, I mean, the plot points are he gets flushed, escaped, Gil sacrifices himself, they eventually all get free. Like, after that, there's no real climax, but him succeeding and stopping, it's very dramatic. There's a lot of music. All of these characters are worried about him. I think that's his his climax, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think, Michael? Are we... So my interpretation, especially from Nima's perspective, the f- climax to me is when Marlon and Nima are reunited and they're all swimming down because he gets caught by the fisher's net. That's my personal interpretation of the climax because it takes everything that he's learned from the fish tank and the dentist's office to uh, be able to have confidence in himself to try to rally all the fish to swim down together and to just keep on swimming. Interesting. Mm, okay. But again, yeah, this is why we have literature classes. You are f- free to pick and choose what you personally feel is the climax, the rising action, whatever theme you're hoping to discuss or look into further. It's almost like it has two different climaxes because I think for Nemo's individual story, the most important thing is him finally overcoming his fears. And you're right, he does do more, he he, he does become more sure of himself and able to interact with the crowd and, and you know, put that into practice. Yeah, I don't know. And, but then Martin. Marlin? Marlin. <laughs> we should have watched Finding Nemo before we did this. So, Michael, you're saying your argument is that the rising action is through the dentist's office, at least for Nemo's perspective. Yeah, that's what I personally took away from the movie. But again, it's open to interpretation. Obviously, nothing is set in stone. And it's what you feel is the quote-unquote correct answer, not that there is one definite answer that is correct by any means. So then what would the climax for Marlin be? So based off of that, my argument would be that Marlin's climax is when he lets go of the whale's tongue by finally accepting what Dory says to just trust fate and let everything happen because it's it's going to turn out okay. Because if that problem was poised to him at the beginning, I would say he would no way in heck let go of that tongue. <laughs> I, I forgot about the whale. <laughs> we should have watched Finding Nemo before we did this. Yeah. And then following action is everything after that what would the i don't think i can say it as fancy as you but the denouement for nemo or for marlin because both yeah i'm not really sure what the denouement for marlin would be if the climax is him in the whale and the falling action maybe is him finding nemo then the conclusion is the end of the movie they go back to school and that's it i guess that's it yeah i agree i think that the denouement for both of them both marlin and nemo are them going off to school like a normal day but in a really healthy i think uh father's son way uh, marlin's really okay with nemo learning and taking his own chances 
and Nemo's, you know, he's gonna listen to his dad to some extent because he really does understand and truly fully believe wholeheartedly that his dad is really looking out for his best interests at heart. I also forgot that scene was in the movie. <laughs> so this whole thing was just an exercise in trying to think about these, the exposition, rising action, climax, climax falling action, and denouement. But for today's episode in particular, I was going to focus on world building and storytelling, kind of, and some general pitfalls because to talk about every single one in great deep depth and detail would take multiple hours, which I do not have, and I don't think either of you have as well. So to get started with creating a story, a lot of different writers have their own ways and procedures and outlines and different formats and ways that they will start a new story. But again, writing is subjective, do whatever you want. These are just guidelines. Feel free to use them. Feel free to ignore them entirely to your own discretion. I trust that you will make the best decision for you. This is just what I've typically learned from my workshops in university and stuff. So the first question I typically ask myself is, do you want this to be fiction or nonfiction? And generally speaking, there's two types of writing. There is prose, which is nonfiction and fiction writing, and poetry. So do you want to write a poem or do you want to write something that is not poetry? Is essentially the first question. Why is there a distinction between prose and poetry? So prose versus poetry, this kind of goes back to the Middle Ages, kind of an in-depth thing. I'm not going to get into it. Essentially, there was higher forms of writing, such as poetry, because it'd be form performed in the higher courts for uh, royalty, and then fiction and nonfiction derived from more common wives' tales and rumors and legends, and that's kind of why fables were so prevalent back then, to my understanding from what I have learned in class. I could be wrong. I hope I'm not. The next um, question I typically ask, because I typically only do uh, fiction and nonfiction because I'm not particularly skilled at crafting poetry because of wordplay and rhyme and stanza. The, the narration style is the next, I think, most essential question to kind of figure out what kind of story this is because that will affect the whole story, obviously. You have quite a few options. You have first person, second person, third person limited, or third person omniscient. And finally, is the narrator reliable or unreliable? There's a lot of different options you can choose. Typically, the most prevalent options are first person, third person limited, or third person omniscient. And typically these are reliable. There are obviously some unreliable examples such as um, Great Gatsby. I'd argue that Nick is kind of an unreliable narrator, for example. So just an interesting perspective on that for uh, tabletop RPGs as the dungeon master, as the game master, I am the narrator. So when I'm writing my story and telling my story, I must be an unreliable narrator for the players because they don't know everything that's going on in the world. But I need to, but I also don't know what actions my players are going to take. So I have to have like, instead of building a story, I have to build outlines of uh, kind of some complex possibilities. And I tell the players things, I describe things that are happening, I, I you know, give them a narration of what the actions are, how things go, but then their actions come back to me and allow me to fill in my bubble of what's happening in the world. And the players really never get everything. The players are never going to see all of my maps. They're never going to understand what's happening everywhere in the world. But I kind of have to have that happening in the background so that they can interact with certain things uh, that they don't know everything about. And, and just to get even more nitty gritty in game mechanics there's 
in D&D, there's an insight check, which is a, a dice roll where the player can say, how much do I know if this person's telling the truth? And I set a number that they have to beat if they get to find out if this character is telling the truth or not, or various other things. But so I very directly decide how reliable the narration is. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting little parallel there to narration styles. Are there any famous examples of second person storytelling? I feel like it's not a very common no, a lot of the time second person is used in poetry, specifically more often, just because it has a lot of more connotation and you, in poetry you are supposed to do a lot more in-depth reading into every single word choice made in the piece as opposed to literature where the longer a story goes out, it's harder to maintain that suspense and the suspension of disbelief, as it's generally referred to, if you're using you over and over and over in an extremely long story, because you can only keep a reader suspended in that fictional world for so long, especially when you as a character would be so essential to it, and that's and it's just not going to fit everyone's actions, how they think, how they feel, or how they react to things inside of a plot. So it's generally not used for long fiction works. It has been known to appear sometimes in short, shorter fictions. I'll look some up after the podcast and I'll put some down for you to take a look at and we can link it below in the show notes. But to my knowledge, there aren't any that are major groundbreaking stars or revelations for that. Interesting. And again, that's that's another thing where in D&D, I, I do use second person. I will narrate the actions of the players and the characters because... I'm deciding what happens in my world, and the players are there interacting with it. The next point or question that I usually ask is then, do you want the story to take place on or in reality or something more fantastical? So basically, do you want this to be something that could happen literally tomorrow or sometime in history with actual historical evidence that these things could have occurred? Or do you want something that's far more fantastical or unrealistic, such as most animated movies like WALL-E? Or Finding Nemo. Animals cannot speak to that nature that we are able to understand, so it is unlikely that it would happen. Or even something like Star Wars would probably count as fantasy because I do not, to my understanding of science, I don't think that people have those powers. I mean, we don't know, but... This is true. For the sake of argument. For the sake of argument. It doesn't exist. Yes. So, as you can tell, all these questions, I kind of set you up as like an A or a B pathway. You have to pick one to continue on. So typically what I was taught um, from my workshops is this is generally done to kind of force you as the writer to really pick and settle on something that so you can get some the ball rolling essentially because you can always go back and change these things. Nothing you write is set in stone. You can always go back and fix everything. You can scrap an entire character. You can change the entire world setting if you want to later. But to get the idea started, it's really good just to have a really vague, open path to just try to get you started because usually the first five to ten pages can be really hard because you're working from nothing. And without some form of guidance, um, it, it's notoriously difficult and challenging to try to pull something from literally nothing. So I have a question for D&D, actually. I don't know anything about D&D, essentially. So... In D&D, do you, are you giving the players the option between A and B like this, or are you telling them that X occurred to them without their control necessarily, outside of like a dice roll or something? Well, it, I mean, it depends, right? So me, 
I will try to avoid because so I, the the weird part about D and D is it is a game, so the players are there to play a game and to have fun, which is why we consume any sort of media really is to enjoy ourselves. But with D and D specifically, uh, one of the most important things I as a dungeon master need to be cognizant of is player choice and agency. If I'm giving them a simple A and B choice between two actions, I'm taking agency away from the player. But for compelling storytelling, sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes the option is you are being attacked. You are being thrown in jail, whatever it is. Now, that example I just used, being thrown in jail, is the most removal of player agency you can have in D&D, basically. Even in death, there's more you can do because there's magic and stuff in D&D. But being thrown in jail is very, like, removing the agency. And it removes the fun for players. So you try to give the players possibilities rather than options. Like, this event happened. What do you want to do? And then sometimes I'll present options like, you could go do this. You could go do this. You know, what sort of things do you want to do? What would your character do? But it's most important for me to preserve their agency and choice because they are playing their character and I can't tell them what choices to make but I, I can present options if you're too limiting on your options uh it's a term called railroading because the story is on tracks and it only goes one way and it's it's not a big deal when you're writing because it is your story. It's on tracks. It goes one way. You have a book. But like I had stuff in D&D where it's like, okay, you did this thing. Let me just throw out my notes. We're going this way now. Because I, I either A, didn't prepare enough for it, which really, eh, you, you come up with things on the fly. But B, mainly it's just that wasn't the story I was expecting to tell. But now it is the story we're telling. And... I have to allow for all options and possibilities. But also, as a game, you can sit down and say, no, this isn't fun. You're here to go on an epic quest and do epic things, whatever. I'm not going to let you just kind of sit there and start a cabbage farm. Could, but that's not really the game we want to play. <laughs> so I have a question for you, Adam, actually. So when you said you were starting your short story, uh, your, your piece... Did you find yourself kind of struggling with how to develop what was maybe happening, going to, going to happen in your story? Did you use any of these questions that I say that are pretty commonplace in uh, storytelling and creative fiction writing? Or did you find you were doing something entirely different? Yeah. So as we're going through, you know, these questions that you've been asking, I've been thinking about how I was, you know, developing my story as it is. It's not done. But... I ended up writing a outline first, and I found that was really helpful. It was basically, okay, here's, I wrote maybe like a small paragraph of a summary of kind of the idea that I wanted. And then, you know, I, I took that paragraph and kind of went, okay, based on this paragraph, how do I break this out into story beats? And then I would just kind of lay out all the plot points that I wanted to hit. And then as soon as 
you know, I had all the plot points down. I go, okay, that doesn't make sense here. I'll move this to here. I'll just take this out. Uh, maybe I'll need to add more things in between here. And I found that that, that actually really helped because if I want to answer some of these questions, like what kind of story is it or, you know, narration type, I can just look at my outline and go, okay, based on these things, what do I need to do to make this closer to, you know, say third person omniscient or, you know, something like that, right? So you brought up a really interesting thing of making outlines and frameworks for a story. This is really common for people to do. I personally do not like doing them because for me, I find that because I'm very typically how I write is I'm very committed to anything I've written. I do not like changing anything I've written, which is a flaw, probably. Frames make me feel very constricted. This is not the case, obviously, for a lot of other people. So I think that frames are a really good way to kind of get a general sense of where you're starting, where you want to go, what you want to happen, kind of why it's happening. It's a really nice way to kind of gather and collect all these ideas and put them into one place so that you can kind of work out and start working on the nitty gritty details to actually elaborate on all that framework and to really give it the embellishments that a story has. Some people also do not like frameworks because it takes time, aka me. I think they take a lot of time for me. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. And we're back. Okay, so now that I feel like we've covered the basics, I kind of want to get into some writing tips, kind of faux pas, kind of unspoken rules, kind of spoken rules that are kind of hammered into in a workshop. I'm just curious what you think of this from a non-workshopping perspective as well, and what you think, or if you notice these kinds of trends in um, media and storytelling and stories that you uh, read, watch, and or consume. So I want to start with the phrase, kill your darlings by, this is a quote attributed to William Faulkner, who is a great American novelist of the 20th century. Yeah, that's right. So kill your darlings in essence means you need to be unafraid to literally kill your favorite characters. A lot of the times, a lot of writers will say, if you, if it pains you to kill a character, it can be a good idea for the purpose of plot and keeping the audience interested. There are obviously a lot of pros and a lot of cons to this. For example, one of the largest cons is it can be really demotivating to the base for them to know that their beloved favorite fictional character is no longer going to appear in that one piece that they are limited to because they are dead. That is a negative. If you are eliminating a reason or a primary reason for your audience to enjoy and continue reading, losing readership is generally a bad thing. Another negative is that it can be perceived as if you are killing a character, it can be perceived as meaningless fodder to spurn a plot or another character's growth. This typically, as writing has evolved into where it is currently as of October 28th, I mean February, <laughs> February 28th, 2021, typically it is not great to kill off all your side characters for the sake of your main cast to grow emotionally or to learn a lesson. That's generally just not acceptable in most writing scenarios, and it is seen as very, very lazy. And just to kind of throw a quick example out there, I know one of the largest television series recently that 
was not afraid to kill anyone off was Game of Thrones. And aside from other issues that it had in the later seasons, it started off introducing characters, and in the first season it was killing off characters. This is a, a writing decision that the author made, George R.R. R. Martin made, where his books would be brutal and lethal in a way that we didn't typically see writing. You know, it, Killing Your Darlings has a certain impact when it's a small cast, but he also had just such this ridiculously large cast, and he would kill off characters. And I know I personally got tired of it. I didn't really enjoy when all these characters kept dying off because I would grow attached to them, and then it's like, oh, they're dead. Hmm, okay, well, who else is in the show right now that I care about? So it it's important to be able to pull the trigger and having a, oh gosh, what's the, having plot armor is not always an effective way to tell a story, but excessive use can be a problem. I want to throw a counterexample out there, and that would be Harry Potter. Spoilers for anyone that hasn't read Harry Potter, Dumbledore dies, but he dies in like, what, the sixth book? Yeah. Like, it's pretty far in. So at that point, you're very invested in all of these characters. And to have a huge figure suddenly get killed is like, whoa, now it's interesting. But now is interesting six books in out of seven. Yeah. At, at the same time, it, you know, using Harry Potter as an example, up until then, in Harry Potter, the death is basically Harry's parents, Harry's godfather some nebulous old order of the phoenix people from the past and then cedric diggory like i think uh, his godfather Sirius black dying in the third book was a really good one but it also kind of felt weird because it's like oh you gave him this thing and then ripped it away or no he didn't he died in the fifth book they didn't really broach death until the later books they kind of waited you know one two three i think the first big death was in the fourth book and I think part of that had to do with readership growing up and being more able to deal with those concepts. But it was, then they did start hitting it a little bit harder and having more death. In the seventh book, a lot of characters do die. And it is very emotional and for all the people who grew up reading those books. I would also say that Harry Potter is not best example of good writing. So take that with a grain of salt. This is true. Another negative reason can be that it really desensitizes your reader and audience to death, both in the story and in real life, potentially debatable and questionable. Some people say it, some people don't. Anyway, when you kill off a character in great succession, succession, for example, in Game of Thrones, it really desensitizes it and takes away impact of death and what death actually is, the finality of someone's life. Someone will no longer appear in the story, ever. Their name might, but they physically cannot because they are dead. In general, I would just refer to a 2016 article from Vox's Emily Vanderwerf um, that's titled TV, TV is killing off so many characters that death is losing its punch. Kind of summarizes it in a bit more depth than we have time for currently. The next point I would talk about for killing off characters is kind of a 21st century development of writing. Again, not a lot of, not everyone follows this. I can think of quite a few examples that do not follow this. But in general, in my workshops, we were taught because of, you know, we're really trying to be better people and humans. We're trying to recognize the wrongs of the past and try to atone for them in some way or another, hopefully, in our own way, that in what power we can. I was taught, and I kind of adopt this as well, uh, there's kind of six rules 
that you should try to really, really interrogate whether you should be killing a character or not. They, um, they are five rules. Yes, five. The character will not stay dead. Two, they are an insignificant or side character that has little to no significant plot value. Three, the character is LGBTQIA+, or queer, as some people will refer to them as. The character is a person of color, and the character is female. So a lot of these kind of deal with people that are generally just overlooked a lot of the times in stories for a lot of white men. Again, this doesn't always have to be true. Sometimes it is very justifiable to kill one of a character that falls under these um, kind of categories. And just to kind of give an additional example, I know it's a trope or a cliche for LGBT characters where any couple, one of them dies and they never get to be together. They never get a happy ending. This is kind of a common trope in a lot of literature, and, and that's kind of one of the pushbacks against it. And then I think I think there is a sixth one there, Michael. I think it's their death serves no purpose, and that's also an important thing. But yeah, the, the LGBTQs, especially the if, if you're constantly killing off the characters so you don't have to have a, a healthy, you know, gay relationship, that's a problem. Correct. This trope is referred to as bury your gays. Literally, they are not allowed to receive any kind of happiness. A lot of this is kind of stemming from Hollywood of the Hayes Code, when um, people that were deemed, mm, if women were deemed quote-unquote sexually per perverse, such as infidelity or cheating or sex before marriage, they should die. This also applied to uh, queer individuals as well, because they were deemed obscene, obscenities during the time. Obviously, the Hayes Code does not exist anymore, but a lot of the remnants of that kind of prescriptive law of media can be found in remnants of a lot of fiction and how a lot of tropes and past works kind of deal with these kinds of topics as well. The one that stood out to me from this list, aside from the very specific demographic ones, are that they're not going to stay dead. So unless your plot revolves around, I don't know, zombies or magic that can revive you, is that what it's trying to say? Just don't kill them? Yes, because a lot of the times, if there is magic involved and they're being brought back, it kind of serves as what is the real stake then? What is the purpose? If you can be brought back, there's no point in any risk or development being formed because they can just be brought back if their plan goes wrong and they get killed or eaten by a dragon or get stabbed in the heart or something like that, so... Yeah, so for, for a D&D &D perspective on that, there is magic that can revive people. There's revivify spells, there's resurrection, and there's in-game rules and suggestions for how to make it have meaning. But the other thing for D&D &D that has to do with character death is if I am killing characters, it must be legitimate i will fudge rolls so i will roll damage and stuff and if it kills a character and it's an unimportant fight and it doesn't matter and like there's a certain point where people play DD &D and get invested in their characters and they want to play that character and they want the death to have meaning if you have a paladin going up against a demon that's trying to take down their god and they die facing it but strike the final blow as well that death has such meaning. That's such a great death. They died serving their God, right? Like that's important. That's meaningful. Their death served a purpose. And that's really the most important rule 
for D&D and for tabletop RPGs is death needs to serve a purpose. But there are also games out there that are incredibly brutal and incredibly hard and you can die for any reason and people enjoy those because it is a game. People have different opinions and choices. But for me, from a storytelling perspective of DMing, it needs to have a purpose. You can bring them back sometimes. Some stuff you just can't. It's not going to work. I'm not going to let you do it. And I mean, sometimes it'll be the player be like, no, I liked that death. I'm going to bring in a new character and we're going to bring in someone new. We're not going to try to resurrect them. And then other times you can have the resurrection have a really important, meaningful experience and make it really great. But it's death has a really interesting relationship with D&D because people get very invested in their characters and they don't want to lose them. So they need to have an incredibly meaningful death or you just need to be in a group that's okay with brutal, constant re-rolling of characters and stuff. That's kind of the other option. I'd like to throw out another counterexample to actually not going to stay dead. As I was asking the question, I thought about this. The game Hades revolves entirely around dying all the time. In fact, the only way to progress the story is to die, which I find fascinating in terms of a way to, as a vehicle, to tell the story and the way it's weaved into, you know, the gameplay. So you two said some really good examples, I think, of, you know, some specific ways to think about these tropes of death and how you can write death in a an important way and kind of maybe what to avoid. So I kind of wanted to get into maybe some specifics that I kind of thought of for good or bad examples of death. And knowing me, many of them are animated films. I'm sorry. That's all I know. So some good examples I would say would be Inside Out's Bing Bong. I think that was a really good example of death. Up's Ellie. Another really good example. Lion King's Mufasa. All three of them. I cried in them, but I'm also an easy crier, so I don't know if that means anything, but do you think that these three are good examples of death, or do you want to debate with me as to why they might not be so great after all? I mean, as far as good examples, I mean, Up, that's the first eight minutes of the film, and you're crying. You know, like, that's incredible storytelling and an incredibly meaningful death. And the rest of the story is basically, how do you handle that death? Like, Carl is the main character of that story, not Russell. It's very much, how do you get over death? And so, her death is immensely important and immensely purposeful. And, like, it's just incredible how well they did that. Especially when when you go after, like, it. it's just eight minutes. And it's such an impactful death. I haven't seen Inside Out, and I don't really remember Lion King, so instead of not remembering scenes, I'm going to throw those back to you guys about those. I'm going to have to agree with Evan for Up, at least, and also I'm going to have to agree with Evan for Inside Out and Lion King. But it was just, at least when you were watching Up, it was basically like getting punched in the stomach and then recovering from that punch for the rest of the movie. And... I think that's a really interesting way to tell the story, especially it's an animated film, but, you know, it's a kid's movie. So it's a really interesting way to present these sort of themes to kids, right? Like, okay, this is something that happens. This is not something that we can avoid. Literally within the first eight minutes of the movie, you cannot avoid it. If you're going to walk out of the movie, usually you do it halfway through. No, no, this is, this is welcome to the movie. Here's your punch in the gut. Here's the rest of the movie. You know, and I think I think 
maybe for a lot of people that was their first time experiencing something like that story-wise in a movie right something so impactful so quickly and then you have to spend the rest of the movie going oh man remember the beginning of the movie we're gonna keep bringing it up because it's the whole movie yeah so in essence all three of those i would argue do a lot of really getting their reader, audience, um, viewers involved in caring about the characters that will then die. And their death isn't necessarily unimportant or neglected, but it's something that serves more than just to spur the plot. It really provides a lot of motivation, reason, and if that didn't occur, it might have stagnated the plot and it would not proceed. Yeah, so Disney really likes to do this with uh, Lion King up, Finding Nemo, Nemo gets taken. It is something that's really common in D&D that I don't really know how common it is in other forms of literature, but it's called The Hook. You need to get the viewers, the, the audience, the participants hooked into the story so you can bring them the rest of the way. And in storytelling, it's essential to your story. It's it's there. In D&D, I have to dangle it in front of the players and make sure I have a, a good enough bait on there that they want to take it and go down that plot line. Otherwise, that is when I have to throw out my notes and go do something else because I've set up this hook and they didn't take it. Um, and so a really good hook is a really great storytelling. If you can get people invested in your story in the first eight minutes, they're going to sit down and watch a two-hour movie and they're going to love it because in eight minutes you bought them. And if you can get viewer buy-in, you can tell a great story. You can tell the story you want to tell, but you need to hook them. And now, onto some bad examples that I think of death of a character. The Incredibles is Syndrome. He is an antagonist. I typically would argue that it's fine for an antagonist to die. That's not unheard of, especially in a superheroes movie. The reason I think The Incredibles is Syndrome was done dirty in this instance was he's literally chopped up by an airplane fan. It's really anticlimactic, and it just seems so different than the scope of what he was doing and the scope of how everything was happening in the film. It just seemed to, there was a disconnect of the severity of death of being literally chopped into pieces by a plane propeller versus a robot trying to take over the Earth. One of them sounds a bit more superhero-y than the other. The other example I will give is from not an animated film for once, uh, from Romeo and Juliet, uh, Lady Montague. She literally dies of grief, and she is literally ignored and never mentioned again in the entire play. I cannot remember if she holds any significant impact to the story. I'm fairly certain she doesn't because it's written in the 16th century. So as far as The Incredibles, I kind of get what they were doing, right? It was the, oh, here's all these lessons that we learned from... They wanted to make the no capes joke, but in a way that literally exploded in a fireball. But you're right, it's just like, it doesn't make sense, right? It's just something that's like, you built this giant robot that killed all these superheroes, and then you die to a plane? What? That, how does that happen, you know? I think The Incredibles kind of wrote themselves into a tough spot, because a, a common trope is good guys don't kill people. Uh, you see this in... Batman. Oh, he doesn't kill anyone. He just knocks them unconscious for hours at a time, which has serious brain damage. But, you know, there's all about like non-lethal. Spider-Man like suspends the criminals and they get turned in. And the Incredibles, the they destroyed robots. Those aren't really people, right? That was part of the whole thing was the 
plot points were that the heroes had to go into hiding because too many people were being hurt in collateral damage. And they couldn't really... I don't think you can write a good end of the story that has them hurting Syndrome in some way, which also doesn't leave it open-ended where Syndrome escapes and returns like to be a problem later. Like I, I think there's certain things that they assumed in the story. I think there's some storyline issues there is what I'm getting at. And I think that was the easiest resolution they had that also kind of tied it into other parts of the film and the no capes joke. And also like, also quite frankly, he didn't deserve a better death, right? Like he did all these terrible things. Did he really deserve to be taken out by the great hero, Mr. Incredible? You know, it's, there's a bunch of, we can talk about that for hours, I think. (laughs) Yeah. And just to clarify in his like computer thing, he did kill the other superheroes. Oh yeah. However, the they did it in a cartoonish way where you don't actually see any of these this happen, right? It's it's kind of almost comical. You're like they're dead because we said they're dead. And you know, you can kind of argue that that's kind of true throughout the whole movie where all these things happen, but that's just cuz they just happen because it's the like superhero comic thing to do. I have a correction for myself. Roman Juliet was written in 1597, thus it is the 16th century. I'm sorry. I am a bad English major. <laughs> anyway, on to our next and probably final point for today, world building. So when I hear the phrase world building, I think of it as something far more and far more significant than just physical location. I find that it also includes a character's mindset and how it relates and interacts with other things and or people and or beings in the environment. So like a character's reactions similarly can really tell us a lot about the character themselves and kind of what makes them tick per se. So I'd like to now consider perhaps when writing, maybe adding some words that really evoke some other emotions beyond just telling you what something may look like. This can be done most generally as what I do personally is tying it to memories. Here's a sentence I wrote last night at 1am. From the corner of his eye, he saw a red and white checkered tablecloth that had covered the family dinner table when they had all once eaten together every night. From the sentence, we see a red and white checkered tablecloth, but also we now understand this character before probably had a nice family dinner with their family with their family and now this seems to not be a thing that happens anymore if at all. So just in one sentence, maybe a little long, it can really tell a lot more emotions that give underlying reason and really fine, finite and minute details that I think add a lot of details and a lot of really compelling information to a story. Uh, what do you two think about it? So when I was writing my story, I once I had all the story beats out, as I was doing that, I kind of laid out, okay, here are the characters I'm kind of envisioning that will exist within this universe that I'm building. And I'll give them like basic attributes like, you know, height, hair color, but also like what their background is, you know, maybe where they were born, their status in society, their class, you know, level and stuff. And I actually don't think that's too different than the character sheets that you have to make for D&D. Yeah, so for world building for D&D, there's really two aspects of it. There's the Dungeon Master's world building, which I'll get into, but because of Adam's character sheet comment, I expect the players to have a sufficient backstory and background that they have motivations and wants and desires and 
And the best thing a player can do for the dungeon master is give me ways to tie them into the world. And also give me ways to hurt them. Give me ways to make the player act. And that's on the player. The player needs to come up with those things for why their character is the way there is. But for world building for a, a D&D standpoint and, you know, kind of large scale tabletop RPGs, world building for me can sometimes literally be drawing a world map. And then it's like, okay, what's here? This is here. Okay, why is this here? Why is this desert here? Oh, there was a dragon attack 1,000, 1,500 years ago. All right, let's draw that in. Why did the dragons attack? And so I ask a lot of why and I ask a lot of where and then... Uh, I ask a lot of what's happening now and and then even more why is it happening now. So my whole world is a living world that then the players are interacting with small aspects of it. And like in one of my campaigns that I had with players, they were not able to impact one of the events that happened at all because they were low level. They, They were like basically dudes with a sword running around, like blue jeans, white shirt, running around with a sword. You're not special. You don't have special powers yet. You're a low level player. You can handle some things, but you can't like fight off a goblin army. But that goblin army is impacting other events in the world that when you get to a higher level as a character and you've built up your story as a, a person, you can impact that entire world event. You might be able to stop that army from going and doing this thing. So world building in a D&D perspective is very large scale. I mean, and the chief world builder for kind of fantasy is Tolkien. He built a world that then he used to tell a story. He really built the world. He didn't tell the story. He built the world and said, this is what happened. So that's kind of a great example there. And so with that... I will make one final statement about writing in general. It's kind of implied at all the workshops I've ever done because we are all different people. We all have different writing styles and we all have different ways of thought. And as such, the argument is generally that one should really write naturally and write in a way that makes you very comfortable. All these rules may exist, but there is no way that all of them are applicable for every single author and every single story in every single situation. There are always times and places where breaking from these rules and conventions are really useful and really beneficial to a story as a whole, and I think it's good to have this in mind when writing and you think, I really don't want to break rule X, but I kind of want to do thing Y. Just do thing Y. It's fine. Ignore rule X. It's fine. I do it all the time. And with that... I think that concludes our episode for today. Thank you to Michael and Evan for joining me. Thank you, Michael, for enlightening us on world building and storytelling. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Aces Cases. Visit our website, casestudy.show. We are on some audio podcast distributions. You can search for Case Study and hopefully we will pop up. We have an Instagram case study.show and be sure to check out our show notes for any additional details for things that we talked about and extra things that we come up with later all the music used was created by kevin mcleod licensed under creative commons thanks for listening case number two zero two one zero two zero eight closed